Well, again, good morning. I got like three more voices that time. That was awesome. Just need the music to wake up, right? Um, well, today we're going to be continuing in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be finishing Matthew chapter 2. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Um, last week we, uh, we, uh, we talked about the flight to Egypt um, and I'm not skipping the section of Herod, Herod killing children. Um, that was covered two weeks ago. So um, if you, just while, while you're turning in your Bibles, um, and I would encourage you to turn in a Bible or an app just to have it open, but have you ever met somebody that's just super humble? Um, somebody, somebody that just, they fill the holes. Uh, if, if there's an open spot, like they're there, man. Um, if there's something that nobody else wants to do, they're doing it. Um, I had the pleasure of, of working alongside a guy in a church setting. It was just like that. Um, we had a food share ministry that, uh, that I oversaw and, and he helped coordinate it. Um, and it, it, it dealt with primarily impoverished or homeless individuals, which most people don't like to touch with a 10 foot pole, much less serve. Um, and it involved a lot of heavy labor, setting up tables and, and sorting food and making sure everything was right. And then he also served as a parking attendant in a really large parking lot that nobody else wanted to do because there was no covering. And so it just rained on you. And then he was a referee for a basketball ministry. Um, and oh, did I mention that he was in his 80s? Um, the, the dude was just everywhere. Like he just, he did everything. And even some stuff behind the scenes that nobody really realized. He would, he would transport coffee around the building. He would, I mean, he was just so humble. And like, if you talked to him and said like, hey, you do so much, he would just kind of shrug it off and smile at you and say, I don't really do that much. Um, and just being around him challenged me. It challenged me not, not because I, I, I'm, I'm prideful necessarily. I mean, I'm sure I am. I'm too prideful to admit that I'm prideful. Uh, but, but he challenged me just by existing. And if we're honest, like a lot of these people that we encounter, if, if hopefully the Lord is bringing someone to your mind when you're thinking of, of just the word humble and just, um, just somebody who's a, who's a gentle servant. Um, but a lot, if we're totally honest, somewhere deep inside of us, we kind of hope there's some fakery in them because they convict us just by being so humble. They convict us that there's sections of our own thoughts and hearts or thoughts and intentions that we we don't like being challenged. Um, but at the same time, we love them and we, we want to be around them because we do enjoy being around them. And it's a strange dichotomy to me. Um, hopefully, hopefully it's a strange dichotomy to you folks as well that we get challenged by people that are more humble than us or maybe more humble in a different regard. And we hear them say something and we just kind of go, oh, wow, yeah, no, I did, like, this is my own thought. But usually I think, wow, I did sound like a doofus there, thanks. Uh, that, <laughs> that's how I think in my head. Um, so our, our text today is Matthew chapter 2, verses 19 to 23. Um, and... And I had some pain over these verses this week. So let me, let me read to you and I'll explain the pain that I had. So again, verses 19 to 23. 
but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go up to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we've all gathered here somehow by your, by your providence to, to worship you, to, um, to grow in you, and to learn more about you. I ask, Lord, that you would have our hearts inclined to hear uh, your word, um, not just my words, but may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable as offerings in, in your sight, O oh Lord. But I pray, God, that we didn't come to learn facts but we came to learn you. Help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So I said that I had some pain over these verses. Um, just working through the narrative. Uh, so so uh, let's, uh, this is all introductory matter, right? This is, Matthew provides this kind of introduction to Jesus at the beginning, kind of helping us Think through who this, who who Jesus is, what he what what he did before he even became uh, somebody who who ministered as a as a, a traveling not a traveling preacher but an itinerant minister, a, an itinerant teacher at that time, which is pretty common. So, but this itinerant teacher Jesus is super different, and so Matthew's setting us up to understand that, and we're kind of if we're paying attention as we as we have been. Uh, there's some things that are kind of being set up for us to encounter the rest of this book. Um, and and this, this, this little section is awesome for that. So Herod, this horrible ruler, dies. And I mean, remember that, that, that Joseph, Mary, and Jesus were living in Egypt at the time. So they hear of this. And then also Joseph gets told in a dream, go ahead and, and go back to Israel. And so he's like, all right, great. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem, right? That's, that's where Joseph had set up his new house. It's where he was going to have his life. That's where they fled from the protector. That's where God protected them and had them flee from. But then he finds out that this cat Archelaus is there. And Archelaus is Herod's son. He's one of, one of, one of, one of the few sons that Herod didn't kill. And he's even more wicked than Herod was. So Joseph gets a little freaked out. And then uh, God graciously sends this message in a dream to not go to Bethlehem, but to instead go to Nazareth. And Nazareth, if we read Luke's gospel, uh, we find that actually Joseph and Mary were both from Nazareth. Um, And Nazareth, uh, I mean, calling it Nowheresville is actually probably a compliment um, Nazareth, so Galilee, the province of Galilee, which was, which was kind of in the northern section, was near Samaria, uh, and Samaria was this province of Israel that was hated because the Samaritans didn't, didn't actually worship the same God. They had some intermingled re- religions with, uh, with the Assyrians when the Assyrians conquered. 
So Galilee was up in that region, and you kind of had to go through Samaria to get there. So that's one strike. Also, it was more desert than, than the area around Jerusalem. So you couldn't really farm a lot there. So that's two strikes. And also, people that lived in Galilee were typically poor fishermen. Um, so, so they were impoverished, and they had, to, they had to do this really long trek. So the rest of Israel looked down on Galilee in general. Nazareth was like the dump of Galilee. It was, it was horrible. Um, it was it, like when you said it, when you said Nazareth as a town, you kind of um, you, you, you spat a little bit. Because it was, it was just an awful place. Um, so so, so that, that, that sets the stage, right, um, for, for what, what is being understood. But then Matthew has this sentence at the very end. It's verse 23. Um, and, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, right, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, I don't know about you guys. If you guys got reference Bibles... Do you see a reference there? You shouldn't. And not only that, but every other time Matthew's quoted, or Matthew's mentioned a prophecy, he's quoted it for us. He's done the hard work for us and told us where he's getting it. I mean, you've got, you got chapter 2, verse 6. You've got chapter 2, verse 18. You've got, I mean, you've just got, all, you've got chapter 2, verse 15. You've got all these quotations, except this one doesn't have it. And that's what bugged me this week is that I don't know where this is. Like, not only does my Bible not know where it is, because I've got a reference Bible and my Bible should know everything, right? It's the word of God, but it, it should have a reference. I should understand what this is talking about, but it doesn't. Yours does have a reference. Yes, Zephaniah chapter one, verse 14. Right. I am not going to talk about that verse, but that verse is a word play. I will talk about word plays. So, so you, so, uh, so this frustrates me primarily because I, I, I like knowing stuff. If you learn anything about me, it's that I like knowing stuff. I may not be able to put it into practice, but Hey, I know how to, how to hang drywall on paper. I don't know how to hang drywall in practice. So I like knowing stuff. Um, so, so here we've got, we've got, we've got a prophecy that's called a prophecy that says prophets have said it, but, but, but where? So I started doing some research, reading commentaries, um, of people much smarter than me, because that's, that's, that's how I roll. I like to, I like to be challenged by people that know more than I do. Um, and I find out that there's, there's basically one and a half or two major interpretations of what Matthew's doing here. The first one is that it's a word play. Um, at, at some point, there was supposed to be a messianic, a, a saving figure that comes from this kingly line. And this is more Jewish folklore, right? Uh, this, this, this savior that comes and he's gonna be a better Samson. And if you know anything about Samson, Samson took a Nazarite vow. He was told that he was gonna be a Nazarite. Well, Nazarite sounds like Nazarene. And so scholars, biblical scholars like John Calvin have held to this. Martin Luther held to this. 
Uh, there was a dude in the 1800s that I suddenly forget his name, but he was a big Bible commentator. But he held to this view that it was a wordplay when Matthew says that, that he was going to be called a Nazarene is just kind of a clever way of talking about this. Zephaniah is another example of a wordplay um, about Nazareth. What was it? Zephaniah 11, 14 or something? 114. 114. I knew there was a one. <laughs> so, so if, if you were to pick up that, you'd hear about Nazareth, but you're not, you're not really hearing about the Savior, the Messiah necessarily. It could be messianic, but it's kind of a continued wordplay. But then you've got this other interpretation that sat around actually since the first century, uh, that this Nazarene, that Jesus was going to be a Nazarene, is not a wordplay. It's actually a fulfillment of a different type of series of prophecies. So what Matthew is meaning, or at least what everybody has kind of, or not everybody, but biblical scholars have, have extrapolated, is that what we're actually pointing to is not a specific prophecy, but an understanding that, that this, this Savior, this Messiah, this, this Christ was going to be hated. It's going to be scorned. And that's true. Um, so, so Nazareth, just to, just to set an understanding, we, we know that Nazareth was hated, actually, thanks to John chapter 1. Um, you just verses 43 to 46. So just to read it, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. So this is Jesus starting his public ministry. We're going to hit this just in the next, uh, the, the next chapter. Um, uh, he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel, uh, who by the way, Nathaniel may or may not be Bartholomew, the apostle, uh, long history re- revolving the Roman Catholic Church there. But anyway, verse, so John 1, 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> Philip said to him, come and see. So think about that again. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's what we call now prejudice. Uh, that would be like me um, saying, saying something like, can anything good come out of Madras, Oregon? <laughs> Nothing against Madras, but if you Google Oregon's most impoverished cities, Madras is on that list. <laughs> um, so so that's, th- th- there's, even me saying that is some sort of prejudging. It's judgment based on where somebody's from. And again, Nazareth was like that dump of that dump, Galilee. Nobody, nobody comes out of Nazareth good. Um, and, and also, not only, not only that, but when you find, uh, when you, uh, later in the, the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is, 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 is about to be crucified and it said, it said to Peter, you know, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that, that no prophet arises from Galilee. So he was hated just for where he's from. I mean, a lot of towns have like that section of town. Like when my wife and I lived in Chicago, right? If you were from the south side of Chicago, yeah, man, you, you probably aren't a savory character, or the west side of Chicago. Oh, you're probably involved in gangs. 
But if you're from northern Chicago, which is basically all, all towns, not actually Chicago, but if you're from northern Chicago, you're well off, right? You, there's some sort of prejudice based on where you grew up, and Jesus had to suffer that scorn. Yeah, them, them's bad folk. Um, everybody in Chicago pluralizes the singular. It's, it's actually kind of fun. Um, so, hey, you guys. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so, so Galilee is hated. Nazareth is hated. But what about Bethlehem? That's where Jesus was born, was Bethlehem. Bethlehem, man, that's where kings are from. That's like northern Chicago. That's like, that's like somebody saying, saying around here, like, well, actually, everybody else looks down on them. But, you know, I grew up in Portland, right? You, know, you grew up in the big city. Your family must have been well off. You must have been successful. Not so much anymore. Portland's just weird. But, uh, but, 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 <laughs> but, uh, but, but, I mean, Bethlehem would have been a better place. If I was going to be king and I got to choose where I was going to grow up, man, Bethlehem, David came from there. It's just a day's walk outside from Jerusalem. I can, I can travel to Jerusalem anytime I want. Nazareth, mm-mm, that's a pilgrimage. That is far away. Bethlehem would have been way better than Nazareth. And that's kind of the point. God didn't send his son back to Bethlehem, but instead to this podunk, worthless little town that everybody hated. Um, you get to, so, so Jesus is mocked for where he grew up. Um, and even when the Christians, the first Christians are gathering, they're mocked with this name Nazarene. Uh, Acts 24 verse 5, talking about Paul, um, he's described this way. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. It's just, it, it's, it's, it's awful what, what scorn is just from that name. But let's read, let's read just a couple Old Testament statements about the Messiah. Um, because first century Christians would have understood the scorn associated with the term Nazarene. Uh, they would have understood that it's, it's insulting in, on the, the offset. But you've got, you've got here's, here's some prophecies. So Psalms 22, 6 to 8. This is, this is a, uh, pointing to Jesus at his crucifixion when he's mocked by the people. This is, what, uh, this is what David writes. But I am a worm and not a man scorned, oh, hey, by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's what, the, that's what was said of Jesus. You know, hey, you're supposed to be the son of God. Just go ahead and step down from that cross. Psalm 69, verses 20 to 21. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink, which again is pointing to Jesus as he was given the sour wine to drink on the cross. But again, um, looking for comforters, and there are none. That means you're hated. Or the classic Easter verse, Isaiah 53, verses 2 to 3. For he, the Messiah, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. 
which is ironic because Nazareth is a desert. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Did Jesus deserve that? No. No, remember that this, this Jesus, the one who saves, that's his name, right? God, Emmanuel, God with us. This is God coming down. This is, this, is, this is God coming from heaven, living among his people. And yet he was looked on with, with scorn, hatred. People hide, hid their faces from him. If there's ever a person in all of existence that didn't deserve to grow up in a place like Nazareth, totally Jesus. But again, that's kind of the point. If, if you get anything from this sermon, um, here's, here's the summary for you. Jesus grew up in a hated town as a display of his humility. See, Jesus before ever doing this, made, made an agreement to save his people with the Father. He made what, what we call, uh, um, it's the covenant of grace would be what we would call it. It's the promise of grace, the, the pact of grace that Jesus decided to go through this. The prophets were proclaiming um, what God had already determined he was going to do. Jesus schemed this. How do I know that? Philippians chapter 2. And I would actually like you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, but Paul writes of Jesus that, that uh, verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, this is one of those words that is not used very often in Greek. And so scholars sit there and, and drink coffee and argue about this word. Uh, but, but the word emptied himself is best thought of as, as stepping down of pride or prestige. It would be like Donald Trump. Now nah, he's the president. He's an easy target. I can't do that right now. Uh, it would be like Mike Bloomberg, millionaire, deciding to put on sweatpants and, and, uh, and a t-shirt and go to LA and walk around in the bad spots of town. Be taking that prestige, that honor uh, that, that is owed because of some social status and setting it aside. When Jesus emptied himself, that's what he did. He took on the form of a servant, as Paul puts it. He humbled himself. God himself decided to be humbled. So much so that he grew up in Nazareth. Let me finish the rest of Philippians 2.7. Uh, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's the actual word. By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Folks, that's who Jesus is. He's humble. We like to think of him as, as meek and lowly, sweet baby Jesus, right? Sitting in that cradle. But, but that's not the only one he was. Jesus humbled himself. He was God. He was king of glory. He, 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 was, he, he was one of this incomprehensible wonder of the Trinity. He was God the Son. He was God, fully God, became fully man. And that's a humbling. Growing up in Nazareth, that's a humbling. 
teaching people that would hate him. That's a humbling thing to do. This is who God is. God is humble. I have a tendency when I think of God to think of him in in his majesty, in his power, in his incredibleness, in his loving. I, I definitely think about loving, how God is so loving. For God loved the world in such a particular way that he sent his only begotten son, John 3.16. But, but it's not just that. God was humble. It took humility to come down to earth, to earth. Isn't that wonderful news? That God is humble? You might even call it gospel, good news. And this humility is so much greater than the gentleman I mentioned at the beginning, who I'm not going to mention his name, because if I mention his name and he gets word of it, he's just going to text me and say, you know, I'm not that humble, which is another display of his humility, by the way. Um, But this humility, who Jesus is, should challenge us more than that humble person we thought of. That humble person we thought of is just a reflection of God's humility. Why? Because God was humble. God is humble. He's the king of all creation who died for us to save us. So what what really does that mean for us, right? Uh, This good news should really incline our hearts to repentance, right? Because if God was humble, I should probably be humble. And fortunately, Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, thinking on Jesus' example of humility, has already applied the text for us. So this is, this is, this is what I call cheating in the preacher world. Uh, I, don't, I don't need to apply it. Paul does. Um, so, so he provides us these implications uh, of Christ's humility. So Philippians chapter 2, still, if you're still there, um, I'm going to read starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, the love of God, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So there's four things that the Apostle Paul tells you to do when he thinks on Jesus' humility. Uh, One, be in full accord of one mind. Two, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Three, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And four, look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Just four easy things, right? I don't have to work hard to do any of those. We call that pride, Scott. Uh, <laughs> step down, pastor. Uh, but, but what does it take to be in, in full accord, to be in one, of one mind, to be unified for one goal? Well, it takes humility. It takes me putting my intentions, my goals to the side so that we can be united. It takes you setting your goals, intentions, and, 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 and future plans 
aside so that you can work together. That's a beautiful example of the church. And then two, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Again, that takes humility. I would rather further my goals every step of the way. And I'm gonna, I've had some bad examples of this, and I'm sure you have too. Uh, I've worked for bosses who claim to be Christian um, who were, were, were terrible at this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. No. Uh, basically, everything was there to make them look good. You as an employee, you were there to make them look good. That's what you were there for. And as an employee in that scenario, it hurts. It makes you feel worthless. And folks, if you've gone through something like that, first of all, I'm sorry. Second, I can empathize with you. Third, Jesus empathizes with you better than I ever will. I've also been very terrible at this one. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. Oh, shoot. <laughs> uh, Mm. I would say that on the grand scale of percentages of things that I've done uh, uh, not from selfish ambition or conceit, ooh, I'd maybe put that in two to three percentile um, if, I'm, if I'm being terribly honest with myself. Actually, I'm just being brutal in that statement. Hopefully, I, it's a greater percent than that. But, but that's thinking on Jesus' humility, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Three, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And four, look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Folks, the example of Jesus' humility, of being born a Nazarene, a scorned, hated uh, person, that's incredible. And we should apply these these, we should take the implication of Jesus being, of God himself being willing to be humble in these four different ways. But it's not easy. It's not going to be easy. We're in a situation that, that's, that's a, a revitalized or a replanted church. We all want to drive the train. Including me, I want to drive the train. But folks, God drives the train. Jesus is Lord of his church. He drives the train, folks. I, I, I think of these four things and I think of how hard it would be for me uh, to, to apply them without the example of Jesus' humility being, being a constant reminder. I'm, a, I'm an under-shepherd of the, of the chief shepherd. That's it. It's all a pastor is. It's not in charge. Jesus is in charge. He's just called to Submit. Um, so with the, with those four things, um, you know, honestly, the guy that I almost just said his name, the guy that I worked with epitomized these four things, but his heart wasn't perfect either. I'm sure he fought the temptation to be, to, to, to counteract all four of these things. None of us is perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. Jesus's humility should cause us to recognize our own problems, our own faults, and should cause us to want to repent of our sins, to serve him better, to love him more. That's what it does. And that's what Matthew is showing us in saying that Jesus was foretold to be a Nazarene. We're going to get some hard statements from Jesus. They, with this gospel, 
this, this good news book, right? It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to hurt. And it's, I'm not trying to do any hurt, but I'm going to get hurt in, in preaching through this book. Because if the introductory matter has been this convicting, <laughs> nobody reads an introduction to a book and goes, wow, I don't even need to read the rest of the book. But if the introductory stuff has, has hit me as hard, has hit you as hard as it's hit me, then I promise you that this is going to be a wild ride, but may we do it together. May we do it of one mind. May we do it unified under Christ. I feel like I've just got to the end of an actual introduction. Anyway, now to the real stuff. No, uh, let's, let's pray and let's worship our Lord together. God, I confess, along with all these folks, that, that, that I am not humble, that we are not humble, that we want to take your place. We want, to, we want to somehow tame you and have you do what we want. But Lord, I pray that you would humble us so that we can submit to you so that we can rest in the fact that you are driving this train. We're barely even conductors. We're barely even the janitors that sweep the floors. And God, that should both hurt our pride and build us up at the same time, recognizing that you are king. You grew up in a humiliated town, Lord Jesus, or a humiliating town. And you did that for our sake, just like you died for our sake. Let us repent. Let us be driven to humility by your spirit together. And Father, I pray that as we spend time in fellowship over food, that you would encourage us to love one another and encourage us to to count each other's needs um, as, as more than our own. I am a selfish sinner, Lord. I really am. And I need your help to repent from that. Amen.